welcome everybody to another episode of Conversations Between Hopal Bra and Caleb Morpin. Uh, I'm Jyoti Bra, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the descent into revisionism of the so much of the world communist movement after World War II, and particularly after the death of Joseph Stalin, and the change in direction of leadership in the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, this is something we're still living with today. This is not simply a historical curiosity. The uh, the the repercussions of this are being felt very sharply today when we see the total ideological degeneration of our movement to the point where um, big communist parties in Europe have become openly uh, anti-communist and pro-imperialist, have become pro the war in Ukraine, for example, um, and where those who st still claim to be Marxist and Leninist are arguing over definitions of imperialism and many of them promoting a so-called definition of imperialism, which fits entirely with the imperialist narrative about the war in Ukraine. So how we got here is a is quite an uh, important question to understanding, you know, the struggle we face today. Um, and I'd like to start maybe with um, Caleb, uh, if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the, the beginning of that process in the USA. Well, at the time that Stalin died, uh, the U.S. Communist Party was barely functioning. Uh, it had been very heavily suppressed by the FBI. Uh, hundreds of members had been put in prison, uh, and it was it was functioning almost as an underground organization. Um, and after the death of Stalin, um, it started to gradually reemerge. Um, and then when Khrushchev gave his his secret speech, the anti-communist tirade against against Stalin. Uh, they had a public national committee meeting to confirm that the speech had actually been given because many people in the party thought it was propaganda. They thought it was a lie from the imperialists. They didn't trust the New York Times. And they had a public meeting in New York City to acknowledge the speech was real. Then they came out with a document called Communists Take a New Look, uh, which talked about proposing that that perhaps the Communist Party would drop Marxism-Leninism as its ideology. It sought a merger with the Socialist Party of the United States. It would become a mass party of socialism and drop Marxism-Leninism. And they announced that they were going to have a public convention in 1957, the following year. Um, and uh, it appears that that this whole process was done like with the oversight of U.S. law enforcement. The Communist Party had been illegal. Um, its members had been in prison. Uh, but that same year, 1957, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized the Communist Party and their ruling Yates versus the United States. And that all led to a convention. Uh, 1958, they did have a public convention and the party was split three ways. Uh, you had one faction uh, that wanted to completely abandon Marxism, Leninism and drop any tie to the Soviet Union. Uh, you had another faction that wanted to maintain uh, maintain Marxism, Leninism and ties to the Soviet Union, but also wanted to, uh, you know, kind of embrace Khrushchev and the current new leadership of the Soviet Union and denounce, uh, the black national question, make clear that they considered black people not to be a nation within U.S. borders. And then you had a third faction led by William Z. Foster that was critical of Khrushchev, um, and was, was critical of the, the secret speech and wanted to also maintain the black national question. And these factions kind of fought it out at this public convention. Um, and ultimately, uh, the, the centrist faction teamed up with the people who wanted to, uh, wanted to move away from Marxism, Leninism. And the, the William Z. Foster faction was kind of defeated. Uh, and, you know, the Communist Party at that point, um, at that point, you know, it, it maintained Marxism, Leninism, but it, uh, but it, you know, it, denounced the black national question. And then it also, in addition to that, you know, kind of embraced the new leadership. And then shortly after the convention, the people who wanted to cut ties to the Soviet Union were also pushed out. And the Communist Party was down to a very, very low membership. I mean, it was down to, at that point, less than 2,000 people. Um, it had been at least 10,000, despite the political repression they'd had up until that moment. Uh, and that was that was the moment when Gus Hall kind of emerged to become the leader. It was Eugene Dennis, who was the leader of the faction, uh, that, that won out, but Eugene Dennis and then Gus Hall be kind of came the leadership. And the Communist Party has been quite weak ever since, uh, in terms of, of membership and it has been a, a smaller group. But that is kind of the year, the year they embraced Khrushchev's secret speech, the way, uh, and, and then forced out the, the, you know, what they called the hardliners, uh, 
and the others. Uh, William Z. Foster was kind of forced into uh, early retirement as chairman emeritus. And most of the the folks who were critical of the secret speech and criti- critical of Khrushchev were just straight up expelled from the party. And they laid the basis for the beginning of, of anti-revisionism, which I'm sure we can get to later. Brilliant. Thank you. And Harpal, before I come to you, just by way of introduction, it's 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 a strange um, kind of honorary or dishonorable position that the British Communist Party has, isn't it? In that we had introduced in this country a revisionist program before the death of Stalin. The, the Communist Party of Great Britain uh, rewrote its program in 1951 for the election that year, and they called it the British Road to Socialism. And they basically announced that in the new conditions uh, following, you know, the defeat of fascism in World War Two and the installation of the Labour government and the and the and the foundations of the welfare state, there was now the basis for a peaceful transition to socialism, that the workers of Britain no longer needed to make a revolution. They needed to basically vote Labour, ally with the left wing of Labour in what they called an anti-monopoly alliance exactly how that's supposed to work. Nobody's ever been quite sure. Um, but they're still putting out this program. You know, the, the descendants of the Communist Party of that time, the revisionists are still putting out, you know, ever more watered down variants of the same program today. And the core of that program is vote Labour to get socialism. Um, so, Hapal, do you want to talk to us a bit about, you know, how did Khrushchev affect a party that was already sort of heading in that direction? Well, we in Britain are the leaders of rottenness in every every section. You know, just as the various uh, Marxist parties in Europe deserted to the side of the bourgeoisie during the First First World War, the Labour Party had deserted it long while before that, and 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 once the other parties had deserted because of its strength in the trade unions and because Britain won the war, it had the material and and manpower resources to become really the leader of this movement, which was reigned against 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 Bolshevism and against, against the Soviet uh, revolution and the new Soviet government. And as I have always maintained, our movement has suffered not at the hands of the hostile class, not at the hands of the bourgeoisie, no matter what their repressive machinery, most of our losses have come from the fact that our, some within our own party, parties proved to be enemies of communism. And during the First World War, Kautsky, Bernstein and various other people, and a whole swathe of parties that were hitherto Marxist became basically social chauvinists defending the privileges of their own bourgeoisie in the name of defending the, the, the fatherland. In Britain, of course, there was no 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 problem on, on, on that score. So Britain, Britain continued to maintain that 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 leadership and it still exercises considerable influence in what is known as the Labour and Socialist International these days, which of course in it has various great great socialists like the Zionists of Israel and everybody else. So in terms of um, what happened after the secret speech was made by Khrushchev, I mean, we know that within a year of that, in, in incredibly anti-communist and demobilizing speech around the world, half of the world communist movement was demobilized as a result, direct result of uh, Khrushchev's announcements and all the things he, all the lies he told uh, about Stalin and about the construction of socialism. So, you know, can you tell us a bit more about, you know, directly what happened in Britain as a result of, of, of that? Well, you've already outlined the British road to, to socialism, which was really a road to no, nowhere. At the end of the Second World War, the membership of the Communist Party stood at 60,000. Its descendants today have a few hundred members. So that's what they picked up by dropping 
revolutionary politics. They have clamored to affiliate to the Labour Party, but the Labour Party won't allow them to affiliate. It's like the old Chinese saying, while the drooping flowers pine for love, the heart-heartless brook carries on. So Labour Party will not accept them. And they have reduced themselves to basically becoming really propagandists for the Labour Party. They are part of a group of organizations, all rotten, Trotskyite, revisionist, and some in between, who actually act as mobilizers for the Labour Party come the elections. They'll complain about Labour Party out of power, but come the elections, they're all bound to join together to ask for a vote for Labour, always under the name of, it's the lesser of two evils. Well, it's still an evil. I don't even consider it to be a lesser of the two evils. I personally regard the Labour Party to be a greater evil than the Conservative Party. And and that's what they are. And they continue to do that. Why would you call Labour the greater evil? Because it operates within the working class movement. It is the purveyor of the rotten ideology among the workers. Our constituency is the working class. Tories may get the working class votes, but they don't have the direct, direct ideological influence. They don't control the trade union movement. They don't control labor organizations. Labor Party does. And that's precisely why it's the greater of the enemies. It's an opportunist party. And the whole idea of fighting for socialism is absolutely bankrupt unless it's accompanied by a fight against opportunism. This is something that Lenin never tired of saving, of saying. And it's precisely because the Bolsheviks fought for 15 whole years against their own opportunism that they made a successful revolution in 1917, where all other parties fell by the wayside. So, Caleb, would you like to talk to us a little bit about what was the response of the uh, revolutionaries to the takeover, essentially, of the communist movement in the States by by revisionism? Yeah, well, there were a couple groups that were formed uh, that wanted to take an anti-revisionist position. Uh, The first one was called Hammer and Steel. Um, and they operated in Boston, uh, and they, uh, they had a few members and they put out a magazine. They were called Hammer and Steel because, uh, steel was for Stalin and Hammer was for Molotov. I guess the name Molotov, uh, means hammer in Russian. Stalin obviously means steel. And, uh, they were called Hammer and Steel. They had a newsletter and Khrushchev actually, uh, attacked China, uh, in a speech and mentioned that, that the Chinese have set up this group Hammer and Steel to destabilize the American Communist Party. Um, then shortly afterwards, a few years after, after the secret speech, uh, something called the Progressive Labor Movement, uh, started. And that was, uh, members of the Communist Party that were in Buffalo, New York, uh, led by a guy named, uh, um, uh, Milton, uh, something. I can't remember his last name. Uh, and this guy Milton, he started the progressive labor movement and they became, they were, you know, they embraced China and China's criticism of the secret speech and they presented themselves as kind of a, a more radical alternative to the communist party. Um, and they, you know, McCarthyism was starting to ebb in the country. The civil rights movement was going and they kind of made a point of being very public and visibly communist. And they would march with red flags and do things like that, which in many cases would get them arrested. I mean, just openly talking about communism was a crime. Uh, and there were many, and they made a point of, you know, as the communist party was more secretive and was just kind of working for the Democrats, uh, they made a point of being very in your face, waving red flags, you know, chanting for revolution. And they recruited a lot of younger people, um, as kind of like the, the, the visible voice of communism. And they were, they were supporting China. They were critical of Khrushchev. Um, and, and those early groups, again, the civil rights movement was starting to get going. McCarthyism was starting to die and, and, Hammer and Steel and the progressive labor movement, they became kind of the, 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 the grouping that kind of, uh, captured that energy. And, and, you know, they were, they were smaller, um, and communism was, was still kind of weak and on the defensive coming out of McCarthyism. But as the crisis of the sixties escalated, uh, you started to see more groups develop. 
And, um, you know, this was the situation, Dad, wasn't it? When you when you came into the communist movement in Britain, you arrived at a time when that process of fragmentation was very far advanced. Um, there were lots of parties, small groups claiming to be the real Marxist-Leninists um, and a situation probably very, very hard to navigate uh, for somebody who wants to join Marxism-Leninism, right? Wants to, wants to work out how to join the movement for, for socialism. Well, when I came to Britain, which was at, towards the summer of 1962, I was a fellow traveler, really. You couldn't call me a communist. And I looked around where, what I'll join. By that time, it was clear to me that what Khrushchev has, had done was that it had delivered a very, very severe blow at communism because you couldn't attack communism directly. You could not attack Leninism. So you had to find a way of doing it. And Khrushchev's method was to denounce somebody who had been the leader of socialist construction, who had been the leader of collectivization, who had been the leader of a great cultural and scientific movement, and who, under whose leadership, general leadership, the Soviet Union had fought the great patriotic war and come out of it winning. So his prestige had to be lowered. And once you lower his prestige, you lower the prestige of communism. If you describe the leader of that movement as a criminal who violated law, who executed millions of his own own people, well, what would it do to, 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 the, to that movement? People will feel disgusted. If that's communism, we don't want to be part of it. Now, combined with the imperialist propaganda and combining with combined with rising prosperity following the reconstruction programs in the aftermath of the Second World War. Workers were convinced in Europe that is not what you want. You want democratic socialism, which brings you all the benefits that you can have without having a revolution. And look what happens. Look at next door. Look what's happened in Russia. What looks what happened in the Soviet Union. They have criminals who come to the top and who wield power over the masses without being responsible to them. And, you know, when, when Stalin died, you should read the editorials and articles in the Daily Worker, which was a newspaper, newspaper of the Communist Party of Great Britain, lauding Stalin as the great leader. And just a few months before he died, the reviews of his last major and most important work, Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR, lauded him as a great genius who developed Marxist, Marxist theory. All that was forgotten. And now Stalin became something to be avoided. You don't bring his name up and you certainly don't say anything, anything in his favor at a middle class dinner party. Otherwise you'll be ejected, ejected from, from, from the party. Now that, so when I looked around, I became convinced that the Christians were wrong and I didn't join the then only party that I could have joined the Communist Party of Great Britain because if I went there, I'm somebody who's not able to keep quiet about these things. I would have been only going to be expelled. So I didn't. I waited till better times. And that is when the anti-revisionist movement started. Do you want me to carry on or stop here? Carry on. Carry on, yeah. The, the first anti-revisionist organization that was formed was a group called CDCRU, Committee to Defeat Revisionism and for uh, Revolutionary Unity. It was started by a, gen, by a comrade called Michael McCreary. And surprisingly and pleasantly, he was the son of a British general, Sir, Sir Richard McCreary. Sir Richard McCreary, and he, it got quite attraction. He established branches in several cities in Britain. But unfortunately, two years later, he died of cancer in New Zealand, New Zealand. And after that, that organization split into and spawned many other small organizations. And one became the communist, um, uh, Marxist, Leninist Organization of Britain and another small group called itself the 
Finsbury Communist. And so it really, after a while, they all fade into insignificance. That was the first uh, anti-revisionist movement. Since then, uh, uh, there have been other other organizations. I can talk about them later on as we, 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 we proceed. Just before I come to Caleb, I just want to um, point to the other thing that was done by Khrushchev's secret speech. Because, of course, if you look at the lies that he told in that speech, they are essentially uh, recycled from Trotsky. So Trotsky, who had died a non-entity and become totally discredited in the eyes of the working class all over the world, died a non-entity in exile, you know, murdered by his lover's boyfriend, suddenly was resuscitated. And the ruling classes everywhere were very quick, when the imperialist countries were very quick to jump on this weapon that had been handed to them. And they gave lots of help to the foundation of Trotskyite parties on, for which there had been really no room in the, in the, um, in the immediate war and post-war period, you know, because the, the communist movement was so strong and was proving itself to be so correct in every way. But, this gap that was left, on the one hand, you know, the parties go revisionist and say, oh, there's a peaceful road, we don't need revolution, which doesn't appeal to all the workers who, who, who want socialism. They don't, they don't really buy that line, but there's nowhere left for them to go if they feel revolutionary. And the, and the Trotskyists present themselves as the, as the great revolutionaries, right? They use a lot of revolutionary terminology. And on the other hand, all of the lies of Trotsky had been stated as truths by the leader of the Soviet Union. So you have there the perfect recipe for rekindling Trotskyism in the imperialist countries. And um, that was the other thing that happened, right, into the void where revolutionary Marxism-Leninism had been. You had, on the one hand, this disintegration of the official communist movement um, and, and this nascence and very heavily funded and promoted nascence of a Trotskyite movement to step in and look like the revolutionary wing. Um, so, Hopal, I don't know if you want to speak a bit about that process in Britain before we well, hear from Well, yes, you see, what, what Khrushchev did was, while he rehabilitated many renegades, including Bukharin, for example, Trotsky was never rehabilitated because that was a step too far. They have paddled, as you quite rightly say, Trotskyite lies. And these, Trotsky's lies were all imperialist lies. Trotsky was a spokesman in a very revolutionary language of the lies about the Soviet Union put forward by the imperialist bourgeoisie. So on the one hand, they do not rehabilitate Trotsky. On the other hand, they are propagating those lies. And it undoubtedly gave a spurt for the revival of basically a dead, 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 dead movement. You know, it really is a kind of zombie revived. That's precise, precisely what, what happened. And it had continued to cause trouble for a whole 50, 50, 60 years. But now I'm glad to say they are on the way out. They're fading out because their whole existence was based on the existence of the Soviet Union. Even after Stalin, they continued to describe the Soviet Union as Stalinist, continued to attack the Soviet Union because even revisionist and reformist Communism was not acceptable to the Trotskyites. But once Soviet Union had disappeared, what did they have to exist by? You know, it's not possible, you know, for holy people to exist without the devil, right? So for them, this person, this Soviet Union had disappeared. And so they were basically left hanging, suspended between heaven and earth. And they have had difficulties since then sustaining themselves. And then, of course, there are internal splits, some caused by very trivial matters within their own organizations, some leaving, calling the other faction Stalinist. Because the moment a party has something correct to say, the moment a party has some discipline in it, its opponents would call it Stalinist. Because Stalinism has become a badge for discipline, organization and revolutionary zeal uh, and and so if you want to oppose, oppose your opponents in rotten organizations you call them stalinist so at the end of it you don't know who is a stalinist and and, and who, who, is, who is not 
Um, but, but, you know, on the Marxist-Leninist side, after McCreary's CDC or CRU collapse into several groups, a number of other organizations came into Britain, which I want to talk about, but perhaps after Caleb's has spoken. Great, yeah. Sure. Well, I, I don't have anything to add on that. Um, I guess I'll, I'll say that um, the other thing that developed is, you know, as the political crisis of the 1960s in the USA escalated, the main issue was, you know, black people and civil rights and the oppression of African-Americans. And the Communist Party historically had taken the position that black people in the United States represented an oppressed nation or a colonized people. And the Communist Party had repudiated that at the same time that they repudiated you know, Stalin and embraced Khrushchev. So a number of the groups that emerged were more radical organizations that worked with black people um, that maintained the black national thesis. Um, and, you know, you had Robert F. Williams. Robert F. Williams was a leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, he had formed an armed group to protect, you know, his community from from the Ku Klux Klan to to defend civil rights marches from the the people who would shoot at them. They would, you know, they carried guns to their marches and shot back. Uh, and he was forced to flee from the United States, and he fled to Cuba and China. Um, and he it was at his behest that Mao Zedong wrote a statement supporting the civil rights movement in the United States. And in Cuba, he broadcast uh, this this radio program called Radio Free Dixie. Uh, that was broadcast in the United States from Cuba, urging an armed revolution of black people in the United States. And uh, a number of civil rights organizers, uh, many that were involved with something called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, who thought that the Communist Party was too reformist because it, it didn't didn't support black nationalism. Uh, and, you know, they, they started meeting and talking about forming a new Communist Party that would be for black people only, uh, but would would support China, support Cuba and and would you know fight for some kind of black liberation. That gave birth to what was called the um, uh, what was called RAM, which was the Revolutionary Action Movement, which was kind of an underground clandestine black revolutionary organization. Um, and it was eventually out of that that you got the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party was uh, were two organizers from the Revolutionary Action Movement, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, and they engaged in very theatrical activity, wearing uniforms, uh, you know, carrying firearms very openly. Uh, and they kind of became a phenomenon in the late 60s. And they considered themselves to be a Marxist-Leninist party. They, they aligned themselves with China. Um, but they were a black-only formation. They were very much, they didn't want to build a multinational. I mean, eventually, at one point, they did take the conclusion before they they were ultimately, they ultimately dissolved that they did want to form a multinational party. But their, for their existence, they were a black-only organization. Um, but they did capture a lot of sympathy and support from many white people and many people of other nationalities. Uh, and the Black Panther Party, uh, you know, positioned itself as a communist party for black people only. Uh, and they were an important development and they were sympathetic to China, to North Korea, to Cuba, and they were critical of the Soviet Union. Thanks, Kayla. Uh, um, without sounding too discordant a note, the thesis that black people in America uh, in, in the United States constituted a separate nation was originally uh, put forward by the Comintern. It was the Comintern's policy. And in my view, it was a correct policy because at that time, black people mainly, not exclusively, mainly lived in the southern states. They were oppressed and they were a solid group of people. And the communist program was that they had a right to self-determination and have a state, state of their own. But that position became untenable after the Second World War when black workers were brought from the South to work in the car factories and various other establishments in the North, Detroit, in Michigan, and all other places. So black people became very dispersed. It became very difficult to maintain the theory of a black nation. And I'm sorry to have to say that the communist organizations in the United States who still maintain the blacks as a separate nation, they are holding on to a shibboleth which is not corroborated by reality anymore. It's more important today than ever to get rid of black nationalism as it is to get rid of white race racism, to form a movement of people of all backgrounds, all nationalities, from the indigenous to the Latin Americans, 
to the new newcomers, to the majority white, white people, a united communist party of America, any separatism is really a license to suicide and it should not be carried on. That That's my view, but I put it in a comradely way. I don't want to criticize anybody, but I think it's a wrong viewpoint. Unless it's shed, there will be no united movement. Racism is the Achilles heel in many European societies, but particularly in the United States, which is first built on a successful experiment in mass genocide of the indigenous people, then secondly on, on slavery, and then thirdly, discrimination against every foreigner. Uh, you know, it seems to be almost the function of being an immigrant that any problems of society, they get pinned onto you. It's because you came here, all the trouble started. We never had that trouble before. And we need to get rid of that mentality and build a united movement. Thanks, Rupal. Uh We were coming back to you. Maybe we should do an episode sometime on, on the whole issue of uh, um, black nationalism and the specific role it plays, because it's not only a problem in uh, in the USA. Obviously, we have it here. It's all over the world. And, you know, there's been moments at which it's looked very progressive. But, you know, there's a particular role it plays. We probably wrote a whole book about it because of the insidious role, you know, that uh, it can be it can play in our country in dividing workers from one another and stopping them from waging a united struggle. Um, so it might be a good idea to have a program on that, guys. What, what's your view, uh, uh, Caleb, on... on, on separate black nation well it's complicated because in the united states uh black nationalists tend to be some of the most anti-imperialist people they tend to speak up you know they were the only ones who really supported Gaddafi. um you know and they they are the ones that are sympathetic to russia you know there's this black nationalist communist group called the uhuru movement in the united states uh, that's basically being they're facing 10 years in prison for allegedly being russian agents because of their activities against the ukraine war and most of the left uh is just completely pro-imperialist but black nationalists have this this feeling that they are against the united states government uh and they align with whoever is against them around the world and so we actually have kind of an, an alliance with a, a number of different black nationalist forces because of they, they take that stance, you know. Um, that said, CPI and the people, I mean, we are a multinational organization and that going around and propagating black nationalism in the United States is a really foolish thing to do uh, because it sounds to most black people that are not communists, it just sounds like segregation. I mean, it's, that it sounds you know, like you're, you're, you're advocating, you know, separate territory, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's not a useful thing to propagate. Um, I do. It's, 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 it's a bit like sporting Zionism. Yeah. And it's, it's not helpful now. You know, I mean, I do respect the right of, of, you know, black communists who do feel that black people are a nation to, to call for a separate territory. But I, I think it's, you know, very foolish for white revolutionaries to go around advocating these things. It, it just doesn't come across very well. And, uh, I, I, I think Caleb, it's even more foolish for black, black revolutionaries to be going around isolating themselves from the majority of the population. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I mean, if you, if you look at the, controversy that Lenin had with an organization of Jewish, Jewish people in, in Lithuania uh, and, and, and Poland, uh, you know, the, the, the Bund. Mm-hmm. And they claimed to be the sole representatives of the Jewish workers in that area. And Lenin's articles against the Bund are worth read, re, reading. And Lenin is quite rude about them. These are the people who look with awe at the posterior of the rabbis. Wow. <laughs> you know, Lenin, he didn't mince his words, did he, Lenin? Uh, well, if we come back to the topic in hand, uh, you were going to tell us some more about the uh, various anti-revisionist organizations in Britain. Is that right? Is that where we were? Yes. Uh, there are a number of organizations. One of the ones that um, came uh, to be called what it called itself at its inception, the Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninist. It was started by Reg Birch, who was a prominent trade union leader in the engineering union, uh, the amalgamated union of engineering workers, um, AUEW. And he had a prominent position. And when he formed the party, he brought 
quite a few dozen people into the party who were his uh, his supporters. And this was following the the Sino-Soviet dispute. So he took the um, line that at that time was being followed in the international communist movement by China and the party of labor of, of, of Albania. So he came to establish relations with the CPC and the party of labor of, 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 of Albania. So although they had not much support in England, the constantly delegations were going to China, delegations were going to not only Beijing, but Tirana as well, because majority of the communist parties in the world at the time of the Sino-Soviet split sided with the Khrushchevites in the Soviet Union. To a certain extent, it's understandable because these people were inheritors of the positions that once occupied by Lenin and Stalin. These people were the leaders of the most powerful movement militarily and economically in, 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 in the world, the communist movement, if you, if, you, if you like. So most of them followed. So the Chinese and the Albanians were forever looking for anybody who would take their side. So those who jumped first to form organizations straight away got recognition. And there was a rush really among organizations to be recognized, like being recognized by China or Albania was to have made the grade. It didn't matter that you had no sport in your own country, that you did not build a mass party, that you did not connect with people in your own country. And there were some charlatans who jumped uh, on the bandwagon. There's some guy from Beijing. He always managed to meet at least once uh, Chairman Chairman Mao. And he was issuing the most blood-curdling statements against revisionism. And it eventually transpired he was a plant by the intelligence services wow. of 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 of, uh, of the Netherlands, of course, always under the control control of the CIA. And there were many such. There was somebody in Belgium called Jacques Grippa. The same thing was found with him, but without being agents of any intelligence agency, a lot of them simply jumped on the bandwagon to be recognized by by, by China. And Chinese recognition or the Albanian recognition, in my view on hindsight, did no good to the development of the communist movement. Because the communist movement had to learn in our own countries, A, to think with its own head, to understand that the head is there, not to sport a hat, but to actually do the thinking. And secondly, to actually build movements in, in your own country, only then, as Marx said, gold and silver, the precious metals, are not precious because the kings put their stamp of approval on them. They are precious because the kings were forced to put their stamp of approval on them. So you only deserve to be recognized if you build a movement in your own country. And that was ignored. And there was a rush to accept, accept people. So today you are favorite in Beijing and Tirana. The following week, you're not. Somebody else has taken over. They found something wrong, wrong, wrong with you. And so a number of movements came and Reg, Reg Birches was, was, was one. And after a few years, it, it fizzled out. When the sinners, when, when the disputes arose between, uh, between Albania and, and, and China, the CPC, the Birchites, Went, went over to the Albanian side. And after a while, that, that fizzled out as well. They, st- they still exist. And if you read, they produce a newspaper called The, the Workers. A leaflet. It's a leaflet. And they call it the, the party, party, party organ. And they're anti-immigrant. They are into voting late. Labor. Uh, eventually, towards the end, they had gone over to support the Soviet Union. But then, when Gorbachev came, then they they stopped doing that. Then, of course, the Soviet Union, as you know, uh, collapsed. So that is very briefly the history of one of the organizations, anti-revisionist organization that was formed after the demise of the Committee to Defeat Revisionism 
and, and, and for revolutionary unity. There are others to which I'll come later. Sure. Um, you know, in the 1970s, uh, after the political upsurge of the 60s was over, you did have a number of groups uh, that attempted to build a new communist party. Um, and they're, they, they're collectively referred to as the NCM, as the new communist movement. Um, you had the Revolutionary Communist Party, you had the Communist Workers Party, the Communist Labor Party, um, uh, the Democratic Workers Party, the Communist Party Marxist-Leninist, it was also called the October League. And these different groups, you know, they all basically did the same thing, which is their members tended to be people from, from the middle class, uh, tended to be people who had, you know, gone to Harvard or Yale or Ivy League schools, but they, they went and got jobs in factories and they spent the 1970s trying to win their coworkers in factories to communism. Uh, they didn't really have very much success because at that point the U.S. economy was still very strong. Um, and, uh, they fought with each other very, Intensely. And as you talked about, you know, they, they just like over in, over in the UK, they were constantly trying to get the approval of Beijing or Albania. Uh, um, uh, you know, and that, um, that, uh, you know, that they would do, you know, you hear comical things they would do. I know the October League was infamous for at one point in China where they had the, the, you know, criticized Lin Biao, criticized Confucius campaign after the fall of Lin Biao. Um, the Chinese government was was denouncing Confucius. They had demonstrations in the United States against Confucius, and they they went to their live their campus libraries and took Confucius books and burned them to you know show that they were supporting Beijing's line opposing Confucius. And they they would do silly things like that um, to try and get the approval of of foreign governments. And uh, and as China's foreign policy shifted uh, to kind of aligning with the United States, saying the Soviet Union was the main danger. These groups were very confused because their entire formation, being a communist in the United States, means you're anti-imperialist. So it became very confusing. And some of the groups just straight up, you know, just broke with Beijing over that. Uh, and some of the other groups, you know, they would go along with it in, in weird kind of confused ways. Um, you know, uh, I, there was a, a like a moment uh, I remember when like some civil rights activists in the United States were were arrested uh, and they were connected with the communist party and they were arrested by the American government. And so like there was one of these communist groups put out a leaflet, you know, the, the, the two imperialist powers battle each other in North Carolina, right? You know, the, the, the Soviet revisionist agents were arrested by the U S imperialist government. So it was a, a battle between the two imperialist powers in, in North Carolina, things like that, uh, where, where it got very bizarre. Um, but Ultimately, though, these groups did have a good instinct, largely, which was that they realized that the counterculture and the hippie thing, that wasn't, you know, that was middle class. And they were trying to get to the working class. Um, and they did they did support Vietnam in the fight against U.S. imperialism. Uh, and they did, you know, see the working class of the United States as the ones who were ultimately going to going to be, you know, the ones that would make the revolution. Um, and so they had amid their confusion, which was coming from the confusion of the global communist movement, they still had the correct instinct. Um, and, uh, I guess we can talk about, you know, you know, how that developed because that was a very big current in the 1970s, so much so it was like reflected in American culture. Uh, you know, there's a movie called Car Wash, which was just a popular movie from the 1970s. And there's a scene in the movie where, where, you know, the, the, it's about a group of, black people who work at a car wash in the United States where the, the, the owner of the car wash, his son, uh, the owner of the car wash is a white guy and his son shows up at the car wash with Mao's little red book. And he tries to recruit uh, the people at the car wash to become communists. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a movie that from, from this period called, um, I think it's called network, uh, you know, that again, it shows, you know, like, a, a group of, you know, Mao sympathizing black revolutionaries being promoted in American media. And that, that, that what they call the new communist movement of the seventies with these different pro China generally sects, uh, you know, that, that existed, that it was, it was, it had an impact on the culture. I mean, people knew it was there, that this current was big enough that, uh, that people kind of had to acknowledge it. Most people in, especially if you lived in a major city in the United States, you would encounter people selling newspapers and trying to recruit you to join one of these groups. And, and these groups existed and they fought with each other and they were a big part of, of U.S. society. And they were kind of struggling to figure out what to do as the global communist movement got very confused. So I guess I'll, I, I can touch on that a little more later. Definitely. Rapal. Well, another organization that you probably have heard of 
is called the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninist. Mm. It has its origins in a student movement organized by someone of Indian origin, Hardial Baines, who was really a one-man international. Mm. He went on establishing parties, Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist, Communist Party of England, Marxist-Leninist, Communist Party of Scotland, Marxist-Leninist, Communist Party of Canada, Marxist-Leninist, Communist Party of Quebec, Marxist-Leninist. And then as the Quebec movement faded, they disbanded the Quebec part of the movement. And uh, likewise, the English and Scottish parties were merged into Communist Party of Britain. But the, the student movement went through several stages. Initially, as students, they were called internationalists. It started at, at the D Dublin University in Ireland, where the Albanians was a teach, teacher, I believe. And then it became the in international, uh, uh, I, think, I, I think it was called Com International Communist Movement. And then eventually into several parties, which eventually were joined into Communist Party uh, of Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, Marxist, Leninist. And as the, and they were the most vociferous supporters of China. The supporters used to go with, with red books and literally thrust in the hand, in the face of policemen saying, you are a reactionary pig, you know, asking people to join Chairman Mao. There were some people, I don't think they were from that party. You know, there's a, quite a ceremonial show that takes place every day. The changing of the guards in, 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 in Whitehall in, 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 in London. And they used to go and say, horse guards out, red guards in. This is during, <laughs> during the time of, 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 of the cult, cultural revolution. And many of, at least three or four people from this Communist, uh, Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, Marx and Leninist, uh, or its predecessors, went to j jail during those those activities. They had quite quite some influence in some music circles as well. Some very famous musician, um, uh, Cornelius Cardew, sure, was was a mem member member of their party. He died sadly. He died very very young. And another musical personage from that age is still there as the as the secretary of that party, Michael Michael Chant Chant. Ch 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 mm. It's now a shadow of its former self. But once the split took place between uh, China and Albania, they switched their allegiance to uh, 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 Al Albania and denounced China as having never been socialist. It was always a bourgeois and government. This was a line put forward by Anwar Hoja. Although he'd been to Beijing plenty of times on state, state visits, he said, well, we didn't realize how bourgeois they were. We just discovered. But the split really took place after the end of the Cultural Revolution when they didn't get as much support from the successes of Mao Zedong as they had received previously. So it's really a state dispute turned into an ideological dispute. And that affected, of course, the Revolutionary Communist Party as well. And once there was a collapse of socialism in all these countries, um, the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain uh, then no longer had its sponsors in, 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 in Tirana. It has still a, a bookshop called John Buckle Bookshop, which is named after, I believe it was the first uh, general secretary of that, that party in, in, in Britain. They have an online newspaper and uh, they, they, they still, they still exist, but just, 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 just about. Um, and, and, and after that, 
they turned very much into propagation of humanism, if you like. But they do support North Korea. No question about about that. And I really don't follow them very much anymore. Thanks, Rafael. Um, something that occurs to me and has occurred to me, you know, over the years when I see uh, the way that um, these people behave, the kind of lines they put forward, and when you hear the stories about the type of stunts these guys used to engage in, um, you can't help feeling that they must have been absolutely riddled with provocateurs, all these little groups. Because, you know, it's like if that's your idea of China solidarity, China would do better without you, right? You know, and I see the same with people who call themselves Korea solidarity activists in our country very often. You know, they act in a way which is totally alien to the country in which they are, which disconnects the cause they're claiming to promote from the workers they're trying to promote it to. So you think, well, who, who exactly are you helping? You know, you're doing the job of the security services rather than the job of, you know, bringing these two countries closer together, promoting understanding between them, promoting solidarity between British workers and Korean workers, etc., etc. So I don't know, how Paul, you know, if you have any thoughts about that, you know, how much provocateur action there's been in the Maoist movement and the pro-Hojerist movement and all of that. I have no, no, no proof for any provocateurs, but it would be surprising if there weren't any. The, the bourgeoisie is the ruling class. It doesn't have to work for its living. It rules and is able to employ all the tools of, from propaganda to secret services, anything to disrupt any organization that come in its, its way, whether that organization is really revolutionary or perceived to be revolutionary. They are targeted and they would therefore be provocatives everywhere, I'm sure. And then, of course, um, it's not helped by the fact that foreign parties will give recognition to such nutters, right? They also have a responsibility to be very careful. They can do well without our sport. The Chinese Communist Party needs moral supporter, but physically, what sport are we able to give to the Chinese Communist Party or the Party of Labour in Albania? And therefore, they have a duty also to nurture people who talk sense. You know, they have got their eyes and ears in these countries. They got their ambassadors. They got consular officers. They get all the literature. They should be able to find out who, who are the nutters and who are the not the nutters. And they should be able to, able to sift. But of course, once the nutters get recognition, the nutters feel they got a li- license to be nutters. That's fine. You got approval from whichever party in the early days it was the Soviet Union. Subsequently, it was China and 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 and, and, and Albania. And I don't know where they look forward to now. But I think you can only be a revolutionary if you do revolutionary work in your own country and are trying to build a revolutionary movement in your own country, no matter how small, but a meaningful revolutionary movement in your own country. Otherwise, you become revolutionary traveling suitcases. Absolutely. And I guess it all also highlights, doesn't it, that since the death of Stalin and this demoralization in our movement, you really see the the deterioration of um, Marxism in terms of, you know, people actually studying and mastering Marxism. You know, so many people are are just following anybody who sounds convincing based on not really having done a proper study themselves. So either they look for someone who's a, who's a good LARPer, you know, who, who, who looks right and, and, you know, shouts the right kind of sounding slogans, or, you know, they'll follow someone because of their size or because they say they've got, they've had the blessing from the right person and, you know, who's able to pepper, pepper their articles or newspapers with a few phrases. But, you know, the, the duty of anybody who calls themselves a communist, surely, is to make sure that they have enough understanding to be able to judge the quality of the leadership they're signing up to. You know, And if you don't, you should be studying to make sure that soon you will be able to and not just relying on what they tell you, you know, is Marxism. You know, you've got to be able to check. And in this period we've lived through, that's been so vitally important. And we see all around the world the consequences of people 
not doing that, not holding their leaderships to account, not mastering Marxism for themselves, not making sure that they are building organizations that really are founded on Marxist principles. Marxist principles being the ones which have shown to be correct, correctly uh, reflecting reality, correctly interpreting the class struggle, correctly giving us the, the guidance to win the class struggle and build socialism. You know, real Marxism Leninism has an amazing track record, but it requires study. It requires mastering. And, you know, a genuine Marxist Leninist is a, a streets away from all of this type of, you know, provocateur and, and dilettantist type of activity. Very, very quickly, because I don't want to forget it. One of the smallest organizations, anti-revisionist organizations that was formed was called the Revolutionary Marxist-Leninist League, of which I was a member. But it soon split because we were expelled. But I didn't I need not go into that story. So when we were expelled, we formed an organization which sadly stayed very small, the Association of Communist, Communist Workers. Although it was small, it historically, people who are very perceptive would come to find out, played a very important role in developing theory and propagating Marxism-Leninism and upholding the legacy of the revolutionary Soviet Union and, of course, also supporting the, 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 C, the C, CPC. And that organization eventually joined the Socialist Labour Party of Arthur Scargill. Mm. Now, Arthur Scargill's organization we joined knowing all the limitations of that organization beforehand and of its leader, Arthur Scargill, because it had made, it was the first significant grouping in the Labour Party that had made an organizational breach with the Labour Party. And we worked inside that organization to take it further, to make a political breach with social democracy. We were never successful. In the end, our activities proved so irksome that we were illegally expelled. And that is when in 2004, we formed the Communist Party of Great, Great Britain Marxist Leninists, of which Jyoti and I are me me members. And it continues to do a lot of good work. It's a small party. We make no boast. We're not the movers and shakers of the working class movement, but we continue to uphold the banner of Marxism Leninism and continue to take correct positions, both in domestic politics and international politics. Our communists are playing a very important role in an organization formed just about a year ago, the, the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, which recently has caused quite a bit of eruption among parties that hitherto considered themselves as the guardians of Marxism-Leninism but actually are following the wrong line. They're applying the lessons of the First World War to the to NATO's proxy war against Russia using the Ukrainians as, as cannon fodder. Our party's position is that Russians are fighting an existential battle for their own survival to prevent their country being dominated by NATO and to prevent its breakup and being gobbled up by the imperialist vultures. And although these people who call themselves communists, especially from the, the Greek party, the KKE, the Greek Communist Party, they, they, they are putting forward a line which actually is not only accepted by thinking communist people around the world, but even by honest bourgeois people. I know a lot of people of that kind, who actually instinctively had the idea that Russians are right and Russians must win, win in, the, in, 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 the, in the battlefield. And internally, we continue to fight against social democracy. We continue to support the trade unions while at the same time criticizing them for being subservient to the Labour Party and for compromising even the economic struggles of, of, of the workers. We want people to join the unions we want them to strengthen the unions, but we want unions to at least perform what they purportedly exist for, namely to defend the economic interests of the working class. So we have 
workers here who are actually in their millions wanting to wage a fight for a decent wage. And what's more, they have the support of the general population. And yet at every stage, the union leaders recommend acceptances of offers which actually leave the workers very disadvantaged compared with even 10, 10 years ago. And so we continue to do that. And for that, we are hated. We are told we're anti-union. We cannot even have a stall for selling literature at a function which celebrates the struggles of the British working class in the area of Derby 100 years ago. Why? Because we're supposedly anti-union. One of the arguments against us was we don't belong to Derby. Now that is your internationalism. Why do we have to come from Derby to support the workers commemorating the struggles of people working in silk mills over a hundred years ago in, 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 in Derby? So the sectarianism has no limit. We are happy if somebody comes to celebrate that function. It's a working class function. It's a heritage of the working class. It doesn't belong to any single organization. I don't suppose I have much time because both of you want to leave, but that, that is something we can actually go through. Our organization and through its predecessor, the ACW, has played a tremendous role in the anti-Vietnam uh, war movement and especially in the struggle of the African people for liberation, whether it was the liberation of Zimbabwe or whether it was the liberation of Angola or Mozambique at a time when many organizations were deluded into not supporting uh, the struggle in Angola, for example, saying that they were just the agents of Soviet social imperialism. We, 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 we wrote articles in support of the Angolan libera liberation movement. We produced a magazine called Revolutionary Zimbabwe, which became the basis of my book, Chimurenga, The Liberation Struggle. In, in, in Zimbabwe and our work was recognized by the liberation movement in that country. Now that was a recognition worth having because it's based on our work. It wasn't that Mugabe came and said, oh well, these are good, good chaps. No. Mugabe came to us because we were good chaps and good women, women working towards in support of the Zimbabwe liberation struggle. And Mugabe used to go to his uh, gorilla camps in Maputo in Mozambique and saying, this is the magazine you should, you should read. And although we were a small group, we were invited at the time for Zimbabwe's Indian independence. And, and many young people are jealous that on that independence day, the crowd, crowd were entertained by mob, mob Mali's, Mali's group, the whalers. I'm not a great lover of music, so it went really above my head, if you if you like. But I was there in the Rufaro Stadium at the time. So we may played a very important role, but it's not recognized. And hopefully one day it, it, it will be. Thanks, Paul. Caleb. Sure. Well, um, you know, you know, we look over the history of these different groups. Um, I generally point to the period of uh, about, you know, 1980. You'd had the, a major economic downturn. Uh, the U.S. economy had been quite strong until then, but in about 1980, you'd had a major economic downturn. And all these communist groups had, had spent a decade in the factories trying to recruit people to become, you know, to become communists. And it had not worked because the U.S. living standard was still quite high. And then in about 1980, you had a big economic downturn. And the response of most of the white workers in the United States was to become more right wing and more militaristic at the rise of Ronald Reagan. So at that point, uh, you know, I talk about how that was kind of what I call the great retreat. Uh, there became this assumption on the part of American communists that you can't win over the broad masses of Americans. They just are too conservative. They're too right wing. They'll not listen to you. And the communist groups all found something else to do. Uh, the Communist Party kind of embedded itself in the Democratic Party and just, you know, was just supporting the Democrats, which is what they'd been doing before anyway. Um, you had some of the groups that went into the labor union bureaucracy and tried to, you know, maneuver and form some kind of underground faction. And, you know, you have various groups that have done that. A lot of 
communists uh, went into academia and they got hired, you know, to teach at universities and then they got grant money to write papers about racism and white skin privilege and, and identity politics. But the communist groups largely, you know, at that point in about 1980, moved away from the masses of Americans. They just assumed that the bulk of the American people were unrecruitable and in, inherently racist and, and unable to be won over. And that old, outdated assumption, uh, it still dictates what the remaining communist groups do. If you look at the Communist Party USA, the Workers' World Party, the Revolutionary Communist Party, they all kind of operate on this assumption that the bulk of the American people could never be won to communism. And it is a lie, uh, because if you look at the fact that Bernie Sanders, you know, despite being a pro-imperialist demagogue, openly talked about socialism and got millions of Americans to vote for him. Uh, and you look at the conditions where many Americans, Americans are more anti-war than they've ever been. Uh, it is possible to get to average Americans with an anti-imperialist message, uh, you know, arguing that the working class should control the means of production and we ought to have a socialist society and that our enemy is not in China or Iran or Venezuela or, or in Moscow, but it's rather on, in Washington, D.C. in the Pentagon and that there is a huge audience for a revolutionary anti-imperialist message among the American working class. But the, the communist groups that have survived all the years of collapse and decay, uh, they operate on the assumption that there isn't one. Uh, which is an outdated assumption. It's based on, you know, the labor aristocracy and a strong U.S. economy. So my organization, the Center for Political Innovation, we're not a, a communist party. We're not a, a pre-party formation. We're an attempt to bring the kind of politics, uh, you know, bring these kind of politics to the American people and maybe lay the basis for something in the future that could call itself a party because there's a huge amount of interest in communism among Americans right now. But the communist groups are stagnant and, you know, kind of tools of the Democratic Party and don't go around promoting anti-imperialism. So, you know, that's kind of where we're at. Um, this has been kind of an interesting conversation. Before you wrap up, can I make two very quick points? Go ahead. One taking from Caleb. Caleb, you're quite right. Marx said long while ago, with his inimitable prescience, there, there are times when nothing moves for 30 years. On the other hand, there are times when 30 years are encapsulated in 30 day, days, you know, if you understand theoretically the movement of history, where it's coming from and where it's going, there's no need for us to lose faith, even if we think nothing will happen in our lifetime. We're a part of a continuing, we're keeping the flame alive. That's very, very important indeed. Secondly, small though my party is, the CPGPML has got arsenal of fantastic, it sounds like boasting, lit literature on every important yes. question concerning the working class movement, whether it's on the question of market socialism, whether it's on the question of Trotskyism, whether it's on the question of women's liberation, whether it's on the question of black nationalism, whether it's on the question of liberation movements or the economic crisis or the question of, of, of war or the question of Labour Party and you know it is beginning to have effect we have never been so vibrant and never been so active as we are today small though we are and we don't claim to be very large but small things can grow big as Masitung said with a correct policy in the end you will succeed but with a wrong policy, you will never, ever, ever succeed. So if you've got a correct policy, you work at it. You work through it doggedly year after year and perhaps decade after decade. And in the end, if I can use a religious phrase, knock and it shall be opened unto the, unto the, that, 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 that's my view. Our movement will make the grade. And in the words of Chernyshevsky, there, there shall be shall be joys in our street. <laughs>